Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to be here with you. Now, let's pray that God would help us to think about that passage well. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit through the pages of Scripture. Uh, Encourage us and keep us going in the right direction. Put us back on track if that is what we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I get to open by talking about the Brady Bunch, that incredibly wonderful uh, early 1970s American sitcom featuring that blended family, uh, the Bradys. And if you watched the Brady Bunch, you would know that no problem they faced was ever so great that it couldn't be solved within 30 minutes. And like all great literature or cultural outputs, it addressed issues with which we were concerned, the sort of things which people go through. And there's one episode where the oldest son, Greg, depicted here on the screen, um, is thinking he's getting a bit too old for his brothers and sisters. And uh, he thinks he's too mature for them, and so he asks for his own room. And he gets new hippie-style clothes. He tries to be grown up. Now, uh, at the end of the episode, after he's been trying to be grown up for the whole time, uh, he, there's this older girl who he quite fancies. And she says to him something to the effect of, Hey, you're really cute. You'll be really cute when you're grown up. And Greg goes with shock, When I'm grown up? I.e., you know, aren't I already grown up? No teenager likes to be told that they're not grown up. And no teenager likes to be told to grow up. But even worse than that, no adult likes to be told to grow up. I mean, how humiliating is that? Now, sadly, this is what the church in Corinth is told by Paul. And the church in Corinth was a church which I suspect fancied itself as being really quite mature. But Paul, motivated by pastoral concern says they need to grow up spiritually. Now today we're going to look at a few of the ways in which the church at Corinth was spiritually immature. We're going to examine the way which Paul seeks to lovingly correct them and I guess as always we should consider whether we ourselves might be in danger of falling into some of the same traps that the Christians at Corinth were. As you know we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians this term, we're up to chapter 3 And I've entitled this morning, How to View God, the Church and its Leaders. I trust you've picked up an outline on the way in. And firstly, you can see that I'm going to look at verses 1 to 4 under the heading, uh, Grow Up. Then after that, Paul uses three images, which he hopes will help them to grow up. Uh, Secondly, the church is God's field, in verses 5 to 9. Then the church is God's building, in verses uh, 9 to 15. The church is God's temple, verses 16 to 17 before he finally urges them to wise up. That's verses 18 to 23. So let's start with verses 1 to 4 and the exhortation to grow up. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Now babies are very cute and it's nice feeding babies things like junkets and yogurt and other mushy sort of things. It's great when they're babies but it's a little unfortunate if you still need to do that for someone who's 10 or 20 or 50. We want them to grow up in the the ideal world. Now what's the problem here in Corinth? Well Paul earlier in the book and in verses 3 to 4 
points to their probable overappreciation of rhetorical skills in public speaking, and he definitely points to their immature attitude towards Christian leaders. And both these things are symptomatic of an underlying uh, problem, and that is that their attitudes are more shaped by the worldly culture in which they live rather than the godly culture in which they should be striving towards. And so um, they have faulty understandings as a result of God, of the church and of its leaders. And these faulty views are harmful and actually divisive. Now, Paul doesn't say they're not Christians, they're Christians. He refers to them in verse 1 as brothers and sisters. They're believers. They just need to grow up spiritually. There is a need for maturity. Now, I wonder whether the same could be said of us. There's a famous biblical scholar by the name of C.K. Barrett who once said, mere lapse of time does not bring Christian maturity. I mean, just because we've sat here for 30 years, 50 years, whatever doesn't necessarily mean that we've become a more mature Christian. It will be fair to say that there are many people sitting around the church, in churches around the world today uh, who are experts in their field of work, are highly skilled at their cultural or sporting interests, but are still pretty much in preschool spiritually. And there'd be many sitting around churches in churches around the world who may have great biblical knowledge. They may know Greek and Hebrew. They may know church history but very little of it impacts or applies to their life. Now, we don't want that to be true of us. So let's see what it is that Paul does want us to know about God and about the church and about its leaders. He starts off in verses 5 to 9, here's our second point, by looking at the church as God's field. Now, what are the points he's wanting to make here? Now, remember that the uh, Corinthians were divisively aligning themselves with different leaders. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas. But to those who idolise Christian leaders, Paul says, they're only servants. Look at verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants for whom you came to believe. Now, this would come as something of a shock if you lived in anything which was like a celebrity culture. And I suspect that in the first century, some of the great public speakers of the day may have been celebrities. People might have tended to idolise them. And I think it would be fair to say that today, we live in something of a celebrity culture. I mean, there's one very famous celebrity in Australia at the moment. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, um, well, I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift, there we go, Taylor Swift. Um, now, what about Christians? Uh, should we idolise other Christians. Now, I think it's fine to say that there are other Christian leaders and other Christians who we can really appreciate. We can value their ministry. And I appreciate many of the leaders at this church. And you would know many of the people I often quote. I, I appreciate the work of Tim Keller and John Stott and C.S. Lewis. And it's great God that's using them and has used them. But they're only servants. They are not our focus. God is. It'd be a real shame if we were more a fan of Tim Keller than we were of God. Now, uh, sometimes if we idolise uh, Christian leaders, uh, we, we can do it in a divisive way. And so Paul says now that all these Christian leaders who are around the first century, they are co-workers in God's service. They're people working together. So verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. They're working together. Verse 8, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They're working together. Verse 9, 
For we are co-workers in God's service, we're working together. All Christian leaders, if they're mature, are working together. They are players on the same team, not competitors in a race. And we who are influenced by them should view them as such. They are all on the same team. Now, I wonder whether there could be a tendency to sometimes divisively idolise certain leaders. I don't know, perhaps you might think, oh, I can listen to Tim Keller's sermons online. Why do I have to come here and listen to some of the trite which gets served up to me here? I I say that because I know you would never think that. Or you might think, oh, I'm only interested in what Steve Young has to say. He's the rector. Or you might think, oh, I'm only interested in what Paul Graham has to say. He's my age. He understands my cultural context. Or you might think, I'm only interested in what Steve Liggins has to say because, I don't know, I'm the tallest, you know, (laughs) searching around for something there. (laughs) So there's a danger uh, to avoid there. We don't want to be divisively idolising certain leaders. But there's also a positive side. When we reflect uh, that God uses different people, have you ever uh, reflected on the number of Christians, different leaders of various sorts, who God has used to bring you to where you are today? Someone planted you, all sorts of people I'm sure have watered you and you can probably look back to this long procession of people who, as best they could, as fallen humans, God used to bring you to where you are today. I mean, I think of parents, I think of Sunday school teachers, one in particular, Mr Mackay, I can think of various youth leaders and young adults leaders, I can think of Christians I worked with, I can think of Christians I played sport with, I can think of various ministers at churches I've gone to, God has used them. God has worked through them to bring me to where I am today and I'm I'm appreciative of them but all credit to the appropriate authority, all the ultimate thanks goes to God and we can thank God for the different people he's used. And this reminds us that amidst all of this, it's only God who gives the growth. It wasn't actually those Christian leaders, it was God who was growing you or growing anyone. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters it anything but only God who makes things grow. So whoever you thank God for, for their work in your life, ultimately you're thanking God for what he's done through them. So that's the church as a field. Now, the next image, verses 9 to 15, is the church as God's building. I read from verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I, that's Paul, laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The big point here is that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. You might think, duh, no-brainer, but is it? Uh, C.K. Barrett, uh, a commentator, notes, you can, have, you can lay a different foundation, but you won't have a Christian church. Well, what other possible foundation might there be? I suspect there are many religious gatherings around the world today uh, which refer to themselves as churches but which aren't based on the gospel of Christ crucified. They might be ultimately based on some liturgical tradition which people think makes them feel closer to God and that's what really matters or some incredible style of music which people think makes them feel closer to God and that's what really matters. doesn't matter what's being preached or taught Or it might be some denominational responsibility people feel, like, I'm English, I'm C of E. I don't care what they say at this church, but I'm always going to be C of E. Or or something like that. Or the church is all about community. And as long as I've got community, who cares what's being communicated from the front? 
Now, liturgy, music, denominations, community, they're all great. They could be part of the building, but as foundations, they make lousy foundations. And in fact, if they're the foundation, they don't actually result in a church. Only Jesus Christ and him crucified is the basis of any true church. There was a book called Power Evangelism, published in 1986. A few of you may recall it. Uh, over one million copies of it have apparently been sold. In 2006, Christianity Today magazine named it one of the 50 most influential Christian books of the previous 50 years, which would now be the 70 years. And um, I think I read it a few years ago, uh, in the 1980s probably, but I can't really remember much about it. However, I heard a tape of one of the ministers from All Souls in London, a guy called Richard Buse, a few years ago, uh, speaking about when he read Power Evangelism. Now, Richard Buse was a good minister, in my view. And he said that when he was reading for Power Evangelism, he thought, well, it was making a number of pretty good points, but he just felt a bit uneasy about something. And then he got to the end, and he realised that this book, Power Evangelism, said nothing about the cross. Nothing. And he thought, oh, surely that can't be right. So he went back and went through it. And then he did say, well, look, there were two tiny references to the cross, but on both occasions it was used to illustrate something else. Now, if Buse's assessment of the book was correct, what an absolute disaster. A book on evangelism and almost nothing on Christ crucified. What on earth was being built? Interesting question. Well, the foundation is, of course, Christ. Now, once the foundation is laid, you put a building on a foundation, don't you? It needs to go up. And God uses different people to build the church. But here's the slightly sobering bit. It says in verses 12 to 15 that God will assess the way in which builders build the church. Look at verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that's the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now we emphasise at this church quite rightly that we're saved by God's grace not our works. It's through receiving what Christ has done for us in repentance and belief, not through earning our way to salvation. However, the Bible does make clear that once we are saved by God's grace, God has good works for us to do. Ephesians 2 talks about that. And here we learn that God will assess the work, the good works of Christian leaders. And I think we could say he will assess the work of Christians generally. So it can be helpful to reflect on how will our work for God be assessed? And how will our building up ministry here at the church be assessed? Uh, Don Carson is a famous North American scholar who was speaking about this once and uh, he said that it's sobering to know that those doing ministry can sometimes build with shoddy material, not I guess biblical material. Uh, some shoddy workmanship might be based on relying on someone's charm or someone's personality or someone's wonderful speaking skills or by promoting positive thinking, or by having managerial skills, or by having powerful emotional experiences, or whatever. All of those things can be good in their place, but they're not ultimately what we should be building the church with. If someone's ministry relies on that, it will be shown up for what it is on the day. 
So the third image Paul uses to help people think rightly about God, the church and its leaders is in verses 16 to 17, the church as God's temple. Now, in the first century, if you're a Jewish person or a religious person, you would think that God particularly is present uh, in the temple. Of course, God is everywhere, but in the temple in Jerusalem, he was particularly pleasant there. Verse 16, though, says, don't you know that you yourselves, this is referring to the Christians at Corinth, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. You know, God was seen to be particularly present in the temple, but Paul's saying that actually God is particularly present with his church, with his people. Now, in verse 16, if you went and looked at the Greek, you would see that a lot of the verbs are in the plural. The you know, the you yourselves are, and the you, which is, of course, a pronoun, uh, they are all second-person plural. So it's not saying that you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit, although we are, but it's saying that us as a community, a Christian community, a church, we are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in and amongst us. And when you think about it, what an incredible privilege that as we gather here this morning, God's spirit is dwelling in and amongst us. We are God's temple. So that's encouraging, but there is actually an associated warning as well. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. You see, God really values this church, and he doesn't really like it when people damage it for no good reason. I mean, if I uh, become aware that someone I love is being um, mistreated by someone else, perhaps my wife's being mistreated or my kids, I get quietly pretty put out. And I can start to construct scenarios of things I might like to do as retaliation. Now, that's not a particularly admirable quality of mine, but it, it happens. But when God's glory is attacked or God's people are attacked, God in righteousness and perfect holiness, he doesn't like it. And so I think we need to think, you know, are we for no good reason damaging this church here in any way? Are we holding a grudge or being divisive or, or, or whatever? Because God values this. We need to make sure that we're encouraging it and helping it, not damaging it. There's a warning there. It's clearly no minor matter to God. Well, I started by referring to verses 1 to 4 under the heading, Grow Up. We're going to finish with verses 18 to 23 with, Wise Up. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world... Now, that's um, worldly wisdom is, I guess, uh, knowledge not based on or consistent with the revealed will of God or word of God. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And there is so much foolish so-called wisdom around today. I mean, you could give examples as easily as I could. The whole you-do-year idea is foolishness. The whole your feelings are always right idea is foolishness. Uh, the whole um, I disagree with you so I must cancel you idea is foolishness. The whole um, don't get mad, get even idea is foolishness. These things are all foolishness, real wisdom, we need to go to Christ. And then in verse 21, Paul says, all things are yours. Now, it's interesting, these last few verses, there's a bit of discussion about what exactly it means, but I think we could say that the, Chris, the Corinthians' view of their faith was pretty narrowly focused. They were focusing in on, oh, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas. But for the Christian, the reality is, in fact, much wider focused and bigger than that. Verse 21, so then no more boasting about human leaders, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, 
All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Let me conclude. Uh, God wants us, the Corinthians and us, to have uh, grown-up attitudes about God, about the church and about its leaders. So we want to get with the program. It's God who grows his church and his church is his church and it's laid on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so my summary for those truths which Paul is trying to bring home to the Corinthians and to us is God grows God's church on Christ. Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, please make it clear to us if our understanding of you and the church and its leaders at any point is not consistent with the truth that you grow your church based on Christ. Please make that clear to us. But Lord, we also thank you for the encouragement of that summary, that you grow us, that we are yours, and that our basis is something as solid and reliable and loving as Christ crucified. We thank you for these truths and this reminder. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.